Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Michael Muhammad Knight, Assistant Professor of Religion and Cultural Studies at the University of Central Florida, about his provocative and super fun book, Tripping with Allah, Islam, Drugs, and Writing, published by Soft Skull Press in 2013. Knight writes this book from a first-person perspective as a piece of creative nonfiction. The book includes a liberal amount of swearing and sexual references, and Knight's writing style is raw, sometimes jarring, but smart and sophisticated. Indeed, by pushing boundaries, it offers the reader an experience and angle that many authors prefer to avoid. Tripping with Allah includes personal, autobiographical reflections as well as detailed cultural and political histories of the many interactions between drugs and religion, specifically Islam. From the beginning of the book, the reader expects the story to culminate in the author's experiential encounter with a visionary plant brew called ayahuasca, indigenous to South America and now popular throughout the globe as a portal into the spiritual world. The twists and turns leading up to this encounter give the book some amount of narrative suspense, but it's a page-turner in any case. The reader, during her journey through Knight's narrative, will learn about how coffee was initially banned by Muslims and how socioeconomics allowed wine, although explicitly forbidden by authoritative religious texts, a status over marijuana, which was not explicitly forbidden, but seen as a drug for the lower classes. The reader also learns about philosophical debates over authority to interpret Islamic metaphysical doctrines and how the world of academia functions. That the book's subtitle includes writing makes itself clear throughout the text as well, and readers who enjoy reflecting on the recreational as well as existential dramas of written language will find themselves gripped by Knight's process. He wrote the book, moreover, during his transition into a PhD program in religious studies 
after already making a name for himself as a successful author of several books. Because of the liminal space from which he writes Tripping with Allah, as well as its artistic precision, the book should appeal to broad audiences and Islamic studies specialists alike. I hope you enjoy the interview, and without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Muhammad Knight. Good afternoon, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today on New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, my, it's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you about this unique book. And our tradition here at New Books in Islamic Studies is to ask authors to share a little bit about how they got interested in the topic. And I think your story uh, may vary a bit from many sort of quote-unquote academic stories, but anyways, we're all unique. So what, what is it that initially drew you to this field of Islamic studies? Wow. Uh, you know, it started out as me search, which I think goes for a lot of us. You know, um, I was an undergrad dropout, uh, just doing kind of a, a starving writer endeavor. And I was, I was working on, uh, the five percenter community. I was doing research with them, uh, making a lot of trips to New York, building with the gods. And I, I wasn't doing that as an academic. I think I saw myself more in the vein of, you know, Hunter S. Thompson participatory journalism kind of thing. Uh, but I ended up stumbling into the American Academy of Religion conference and giving a presentation on the five percenters really, again, you know, not having a four year degree, not knowing how any of this worked. It just so happened that, uh, you know, this tremendous scholar and friend, Lori Silvers vouched for me and introduced me to that world. And, uh, you know, I, I found myself presenting at the American Academy of Religion on this community Ended up going to dinner uh, with the Islamic Studies people, you know, the annual thing that, that we do in different versions over the years. Uh, I found myself at that dinner, and someone <laughs> someone uh, pointed at the room to me, like at the crowd of people, and said, you know, none of these people can hold down a regular job. They're good at getting obsessed with things and writing about them and reading about them and talking about them, uh, and that's really the only things that their brains are equipped to do. And that's what my brain is equipped to do. You know, I, it sounded like a dream to me and it really, it had never occurred to me that that was a life and that that was a professional choice. I kind of fell out of school. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know why I was in school. I was just kind of drifting and it was, it was really just Lori Silver's opening that door for me and, and vouching for me so that other, uh, smart professional people would, would vouch for me and, and open doors for me and, uh, really, I mean, this is this is the dream for me, you know, mm-hmm. just um, get obsessed with stuff and write about it and talk about it. Uh-huh. It was kind of an accident, you know. Yeah. So you had you had written several books actually before you uh, began graduate school in Islamic studies. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't the, the uh, necessarily the most strategic move for this career path, but that's that's how it worked out. So. Well, well, we'll get into the, the meat of the book uh, shortly, and you can comment on how it relates to as well as departs from other projects you've worked on. But when you, when you started graduate school, who are some of the, the authors, old and new, and influential mentors in your life that 
helped orient you to this new path, as it were? So, you know, I went to UNC and I'm really a cheerleader for that program and the people in it. So when I came in, it was uh, Juliana Heimer's first year. My first year as a student was her first year as faculty there. And she was my advisor. And so much of my, my vision of what it means to be in this field, both in terms of scholarship and teaching and our, our weird overlaps with community stuff and and our, our lives off campus. Uh, so much of it I, I owe to her as, as a mentor. Um, certainly Carl Ernst and you know when I started Omid Safi was there. And for all three of them, so much of you know the, the training besides coursework and informal conversations was watching them teach. I, mean, I TA'd for all of them at different points and just sitting there you know watching them uh, talk about Islam in North Carolina was uh, really formative for me in, in terms of thinking about how I would do that. You know, like not only what kind of books I would write in the future, because I'm really getting a chance to meet students where they are and think about writing in that way, uh, but also how I present it in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, I'm a big cheerleader. For- yeah, and I, I hope we can chat some more about teaching and how that relates to the book as well. So... Let, let's follow up. The The title is, is provocative, uh, I think, on, on many levels. Could we, could we start off with, could you just like do some exegesis of, of the title? <laughs> Tripping with Allah, Islam, Drugs, and Writing. Can you say a bit how that, that title came to be? Tripping with Allah, I think, is just a money title. I, I, just, I, I'm, I just think it's a cool title. Uh, and I, I think it's a cool cover. I mean, the cover is part of it, you know. Um, I don't know what the cover is doing exactly. It's uh, it's a transformer with, I think, Soundwave's head holding Zulfikar, Ali's sword, on some other planet with weird alien masjid in the background and wearing the universal flag on its chest. I don't know. I, I think it's cool. And the, the Islam, Drugs, and Writing was really the triangulation of, of the book because, you know, I've experienced Islam as a drug and I don't mean that in any kind of, you know, negative way that some people would take it. Uh, what I mean to say is that, you know, there's times when experiencing the world as a Muslim is a, is a chemical thing in my brain. You know, it's, it's not necessarily that uh, I have a coherent Aqidah or, you know, a doctrinal checklist or that I, I conform to any kind of uh, constructed orthodoxy in that way. But when I do Muslim-ish things, something happens chemically for me. You know, I've, I've, I've experienced that throughout my life. And so thinking about Islam as a drug, besides just, you know, thinking about drugs as a potential route to uh, experiencing Islam. And the, the two of these meet in writing too, because writing has been for me both Dean and drug, you know, I've, I've experienced writing as a spiritual pursuit, as a religious pursuit. Uh, I don't know that I would necessarily be Muslim in the way that I'm Muslim now, if I didn't have writing, you know, I, I think that was my path. Like just asking myself questions and taking that as far as I could, uh, on the page. That's how I, that's how I'm Muslim in my recognizable form and writing. Likewise, there's something chemical that happens there. 
you know, uh, there's ways that I, I stem out on it. You know, um, there's, there's ways that, you know, staying up all night and caffeinating in different ways, you know, whether it was like GNC pre-workout or whatever it was, uh, the combination of the, the physical activities on the computer and that weird hour of night and whatever kind of stimulants are, are operating on me too, uh, Islam drugs, right? They were all kind of tri- triangulated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Islam was my writing life. My writing life was deeply religious. They both relate to chemical imbalances in my brain that can be productive. And I, I found uh, a way to um, function as a member of society with those chemical imbalances. So uh, the, the three things were inseparable for me. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the things that I found compelling about seeing connections with those ideas in the book is the the thread that you have woven throughout the book just in terms of like questioning reality and figuring out how how it is that we make sense of things vis-a-vis language or relationships with things that you know people told us are true we might take for granted and stuff like that and so related to this is the book um culminates with uh, an experience on this drug called ayahuasca so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing many of our listeners won't be immediately familiar with this. So I was wondering if you could, in your own words, say a little bit about what ayahuasca is. So ayahuasca is this uh, psychoactive tea that originates in South America and the Amazon and has found its way into, uh, for lack of a more precise term, new age kind of context. So it's traveled north of the equator. Uh it has been refashioned and reformulated in different ways. Uh, you know, there are ayahuasca churches that ident- identify as deeply Christian. There are ayahuasca shamans who present this as medicine. That's how they talk about it. So it's a, a wellness kind of technology. There's lots of different ways that, that different communities and um, entrepreneurs also uh, present this tea, uh, but it's it's grown in prominence over the last um, half a century or so. It, it's circulated increasingly, and now you know, for better or worse, it's been transformed by that. You know, so there is a a spiritual tourism industry that has changed what people would perceive as more traditional shamanism. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was something that was in the air at just the right time and place for me to encounter it and think about possibly finding a, a portal into it as a Muslim, looking at it as a, a different way of me experiencing Islam. And at one point, you, you compare it to popular perceptions of cocaine, and cocaine is fun, but ayahuasca is anti-fun. Could, could you say a little bit more about that, how how this, this brew has gotten the rap of like not necessarily being fun, but nonetheless very meaningful and compelling for people? Well, you know, I've never been a recreational drug user. I don't drink alcohol. Uh, it was never, I was never someone who would go to a show and, and want to be wasted at the show. You know, I wasn't that person. Uh, so I had a lot of wariness when I was first hearing about ayahuasca because I am very, uh, 
conservative, not in my ideas, but in my actual lived experience and my behavior. I'm, I'm a pretty conservative person when it comes to intoxication. So, so I, I was hesitant. I was cautious. And that was one of the disclaimers and reassurances that, that people gave me was that this isn't a party thing. This is a, uh, this is a vision quest, you know, like you, you're not, you're not doing this for a good time. Uh, kind of the opposite. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that was, that made it more compelling. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just didn't want to, you know, get wasted. That's not what it was about for me. Right. And so one of the things that I think the book does in a really well and provocative way is you look at, it's it's at once autobiographical, but you also look at the history of drugs and Islamic traditions and Muslim-majority societies and authoritative texts, and you show how, you know, it's a really complicated story to tell this, the history of, of Islam and drugs. So could you say a little bit about what, what were some of the surprises you encountered doing your research and looking into perceptions of things ranging from wine to hashish to coffee? Uh, yeah, I mean, just it was an exercise in being more careful about my terms and my assumptions because, you know, most conversations about Islam and drugs today are based on this assumption that it's a very straightforward, very plain as day. Well, Islam forbids intoxicants. And, you know, there there's scholarship to really complicate that. You know, first of all, what is an intoxicant and what how do you decide that something is, you know, that this haram substance or not? So early on there were debates about precisely what does the Quran prohibit when it prohibits khamer, you know? Uh, is this any kind of intoxicating beverage? Is it strictly stuff made from grapes? What does this mean for stuff from dates? You know, uh, when Muslims first encountered coffee, they had these same conversations. Uh, clearly, coffee has some kind of physical effect on people. Does that mean we call this intoxication? Does that mean it's haram? Uh, people seem to assemble to drink coffee in ways that are analogous to a tavern where people are getting drunk. So is the coffee house, can you by analogical reasoning say the coffee house is the same kind of place as the tavern? And does that make coffee analogous to wine? Uh, And, you know, when it came to hashish, there was a quote-unquote conservative argument that you could not prohibit hashish in the way that you prohibited wine because simply saying wine is intoxicating, wine is forbidden, therefore all intoxicants are forbidden. Uh, you know, there were people who said, well, that's bidda to say that hashish is forbidden because it's intoxicating, because the Quran doesn't, you know, spell it out. What, what is it about wine that makes it intoxicating? Or right? what that makes it forbidden, rather? So there was a kind of, you know, to be somewhat imprecise here, there was a kind of Salafism in its day that said you can't, prohibit hashish just because it intoxicates. That's bidda. Um, so yeah, so just, just seeing how complex those conversations were historically, um, because certainly, you know, when I became Muslim and I was very convinced that there was the singular, clear, straightforward Islamic position on drug use, uh, you know, I, I wasn't getting nuance. The pamphlets didn't give me nuance. You know, the pamphlets didn't historicize the question of, of Islam and drugs. So, yeah, it was it was really just uh, you know doing that kind of reading was just an exercise in 
destabilizing the field so that I, I conceivably could imagine ayahuasca as an Islamic experience. Not, not that I'm the most legally minded Muslim to start out with, but uh, it was a compelling conversation for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you say more about the kinds of conversations you've had with people about this? Is, do you, do you avoid these kinds of circles where you're going to interact with people that will disagree with you immediately about the legality of ayahuasca, like from an Islamic perspective? Uh, most of this happens on the internet. Uh-huh. <laughs> people, I think people are more gentle in real life. You know, right. I face occasionally there's something, but, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, our, our social media worlds are our, our bubbles and we, don't necessarily encounter tons of people who aren't already receptive to us. I, I do. I do occasionally get messages from people who want me to set something up for them, and you know, do I do I know these people or you know, do I have these connections? There are people who treat me as though I'm primarily a legal scholar and I'm not. Law is not what I do. And so they really want to get into the halal haram thing as though I'm going to give them a prescriptive answer on that. Mm-hmm. So, oh yes. As a matter of fact, I've decided it's Makru. You know, like I don't, I don't do that. Um, and then there's people who ask me about like, is this, is there something demonic about it? Is this, is this black magic on some? Mm-hmm. So, you know, like it's, it's this weird overlap between, yes, I, I'm a trained scholar and I'm also someone who lives in the world. And so there's these interesting overlaps and intersections intersections in terms of what people want from me when it comes to drugs and Islam. Mm-hmm. Do you, as you're looking into your future in academia and ha- having experience published many things, does dealing with the challenges that you present in this book give you any kind of pause or particular kind of concern, especially given how graphic and personal some of the experiences that you share are? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, I kind of saw this as my last chance to be a real writer in some ways, because um, not, not only, not, not simply for for concerns like that, because I think I still write radical things, uh, but just the way that I thought about writing, when I was working on this, you know, as this subjective personal experience rather than being this, you know, theoretically sophisticated brain in a jar kind of writer. Um, you know, I, I was, I was finishing my master's and about to go into, you know, a, a PhD program. And I was in this kind of liminal space and I thought this is my chance to really, um, to really live writing you know, to really live writing, uh, not be someone who writes, but to be a writer as like the core definition of, of my being. And yeah, I, I didn't know what kind of future that would have, you know, a- after the fact. Uh, certainly, um, there, there's scary dimensions of it, you know, when you put yourself out there like that. Uh, but, but I also think it's too late for me to be overly strategic about that because I've already put myself out there before even considering grad schools as a possible possibility for me. So, um, if, if I wanted to sanitize, you know, myself publicly, uh, I don't know that that's even thinkable. So, um, this is, this is what you get. 
Well, and I think you've got a provocative line in, in the book as well, where you're sharing a conversation you had with someone who said something like that is your your books could be really great if you like kept all the weird stuff out or something like that. Yeah, no, that that was that was I'm sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say and then your your retort is, well, people are already assigning my books in college and like it didn't come across in an arrogant way. It just came across as in like when it comes to learning, like learning involves weird stuff and so that's not that's not a hindrance per se. That was the yeah, sense I got. That, that was during my, you know, my master's and I was, you know, at, at Harvard doing this, uh, you know, the diff school and my advisor, my official advisor, Jane Smith said to me, your books could be used in courses if you took out all the crap. <laughs> and, I, you know, it was, it was a little bit stunning for me. You know, first there was this kind of defensive, well, on this campus, my books are already being used crap included. But then also this, uh, this insecurity of having to carry around this crap with me for the rest of my life and, and being that guy who wrote that crap, you know, <laughs> because our, our tendency or, you know, our, our official form when we're writing reviews is to use the present tense forever. Knight argues that Knight writes in Knight explains, uh, whether I wrote that 20 years ago or what, you know what I mean? So if you say something in print, you say it forever. And I, I do have all kinds of anxieties about that because there's people who still treat me like it's 2002, you know, you know, like my first couple AAR conferences, people were expecting me to show up in a spike jacket or something. You know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely that. That's that's a legitimate concern, I think. Well, so could I ask, connecting back to the issue of the process of writing, it, it and you talk about this book as occupying this liminal space. What, g- given the the freedom that you've experienced in writing, what is it about the sort of academic mold that compels you, or maybe mold is too strong a word, but the academic style of inquiry? that attracts you? Uh, I love the rigor. I love continually questioning the concepts through which I, I walk in the world. I love uh, being able to lose myself in the pursuit of a question. You know, I, I don't know what it does for my writing. Uh, I think it makes me a sharper writer in a lot of ways because there's certainly... Um, lots of writers who are, who are careless about the spaces that they inhabit. And there are books of mine that I'm afraid to look at now because I'm, I'm afraid of finding that same kind of carelessness. I think the academia has trained me to be more careful about that. I don't know if that's the same as training me to be a better writer. I think it's trained me to be a better critic of my work. Um, I don't know what that means in terms of, of the quality of the writing uh, itself, because I, you know, in some ways, academic writing calls me to a greater precision and greater sophistication. Uh, on the other hand, it can also, in its own way, be a lazy kind of writing because you just submit your uh, your findings. You, you know what I mean? Like it's it's not. It's not writing for art. 
Uh-huh. And so it's, it's not that it's, it's lazy, but it's, it's working different parts of your brain and working different muscles. So, you know, in, uh, in tripping, like, you know, I was, I was like a real like gym bro for a while. And so this is partly how I think of these things. But when I was a real gym bro, I was, I was that guy who never worked legs, you know? Um, so my legs were the same size they had been since I was 10 years old. And my arms were getting bigger and um, they were just based on where I placed my priorities. Some things grew more than others. So academic writing, I'm choosing to develop some muscles and letting others atrophy at times. Uh, so that's just something I'm, I'm very trying to, to balance. Yeah, that's a, that's a lovely analogy. It makes sense in terms of the types of things you share in the book. Um, I hadn't, hadn't made that connection on my own. So thank you for that as well. So on this note of what you call, you refer to it as laziness, but I correct me if, if I'm wrong, just the sense that the certain kind of writing can come across as maybe a little bit sterile, not, not uninformative or bad, but not necessarily exciting. And so in a teaching context, so I have a pedagogy question for you. Um, you know, this obviously makes a big difference. And you mentioned something related to drugs to, you know, a room full of 18-year-olds and their eyes will perk up in a way that, you know, mentioning Foucault won't necessarily do the same thing, even if you know in the back of your mind you have really exciting things to say about both topics. So the question is, which, which I, I shared with you a little bit, is I recently taught a course, I co-taught with a colleague, Daryl Katerine, called Religion, Drugs, and Culture. And we, we gave students uh, a prompt asking them if, if this book, Tripping with Allah, would be suitable common reading for incoming first-year students. And it, it was probably the most exciting conversation the students contributed to all semester, and they had some really inspired ideas. But I was wondering... Your thoughts, I know it's, it's like your own book, but to, to the best that you could offer your insight about this, in a liberal arts context, what, what do you think the benefits and challenges of assigning this to 18-year-olds fresh out of high school would be? Uh, I, I think it would present a radically different image of Muslims than they're expecting. And I think there's something productive about that and also a limit. Because, you know, with the, my earlier work with the topical course, I found a lot of encouraging responses from non-Muslim readers that were also kind of gross in their way. Because people would say, oh, you know, I, I thought Muslims were so awful, but then I realized that they, there are Muslims who also drank and hook up and do drugs. And, and you know, like that's that's not where I want it to go. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, I learned to accept Muslims who are more doing the stuff that I'm doing, you know, like that, that's, that's not my intention or something I see is, is all that helpful. Uh, but I, but I do think presenting a more complex picture of people is, is, uh, is helpful. So, so yeah, I, I think it does something. I, I think there's enough, criticalness smuggled in. So um, one of my mentors used to use the term stealth theory, like introducing these theoretical conversations, these critical conversations without necessarily throwing Foucault at them. Uh, 
the way that it treats things as these unstable constructs, I think that can be productive. And my hope is that it's in parts uh, entertaining enough to to sustain um, you know the energy needed to read it. Uh, you know, I, I'm really interested in hearing how it goes when it gets used in classes. I would never use it in my own class. I, I, I do sometimes. You know, I, I found pedagogical value in an occasional, you know, uh, drinking bang lassi and going to the shrine anecdote. I think there's something to that. Uh, you know, and I think it, it's productive as course reading, but not in my class. Right. This is the, the vulnerability and like the the problems of here, like like read this uh, intense, intense, crazy narrative that was going on in my body. Uh, and then I'm going to grade your response to it. Like that's, that's right. It's too many problems there. As, as you were writing this book and thinking about this liminal space, moving into a career in academia, did you consciously think this is totally not something I want to assign to my future students? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't think at that point I was even thinking of like, I would have students like it's a, it's a weird thing to anticipate in the future, you know, yeah. uh, someday I'm going to have a classroom of people that are supposed to listen to me for something. Uh, it, it was, it was so far in the distance uh, for me at that time, but, um, I have had that self-consciousness of, you know, there's a certain kind of characterization or a performance that I offer when I'm in a classroom and that's, you know, that that's the, the setting versus, my writing life. And there are students who Google their teachers and there are students who, you know, show up with one of my books in their backpack. <laughs> that's happened a couple of times. And that's, you know, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm grateful that, you know, that they took the time to read me, but I also feel really vulnerable in, in that situation, you know, because that's, that's not the character that I'm playing in the classroom. Sure. And so, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think stu- students, my, my students were very keen to like, whoa, this is clearly taboo. I'm not sure everyone's got the maturity or wherewithal to just, like, handle it. And one of the things it made me wonder is, so, like, thinking about, from your perspective, in an American context in particular, just thinking about complications of what what drugs are, um, do, you, do you see the discourse changing in Muslim-American circles, however, you know, incoherent the, the category of Muslim-American is? And say say more about that, please, if you like. Do you see the discourse about drugs evolving? Do you see people taking interest in this discourse? Sure, I, I think there's. Well, I mean, if, if I'm comparing it to my own younger years, there's certainly open spaces in ways that I never anticipated. Uh, and you know, whether that counts as mainstream or not. When I when I think of mainstream, you know, I don't use that word, but. Uh, when I think about Islam and Muslim communities in those terms, I don't think of the the public scholarly faces. You know what I mean? So if it's a question of Muslims opening up to drugs or not, I'm, think, I'm not going to go look up, like, what did Yasser Khaji say about this? Uh, I think on the ground, certainly there's more spaces uh, to talk about having a foot in that world. Yeah. I mean, I, recently someone posted a photo of uh, this dude making tawaf around the Kaaba and he had some pills on his tongue. Uh, I don't remember the, you know, I'm not like a, a party drug person, so 
I've never done any kind of pill stuff, so I don't know what they were, but um, there was a lot of fruitful conversation about that. Uh-huh. Well, okay, so also connected to that is you. You write so- somewhat in passing as a thought experiment was the impression I got towards the end of your book that, you know, what what would it be like if people ingested this visionary substance of ayahuasca like at the Kaaba in Mecca. Um, did you did you have any any further ideas about that thought experiment? I know it's like totally hypothetical to ask what the aftermath of that would be like. The cops show up. <laughs> that's, that's the aftermath. It was a yeah. fantasy, you know, it was, it was science fiction for me. Yeah. Um, I think that's the aftermath. The cops show up and the responsible ulama show up and they say, you can't, God damn it, pal, you can't base law on visions. There, there, then it's everything's settled. So, um, mm. sadly, I don't know. Um, so there's, so there's, there's no like worldwide revolution that takes place based on everyone's mystical visions that change the way they see the world. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think I'm I'm past uh, past that that narrative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'll be awesome. I, I would love that. You know, it's still a trip at the Kaaba, and then you know everything's perfect forever. Well, I um, but on on too, I think one of the many compelling threads that came across the book is that you know even mentioning your that you don't consider yourself a. A, a law a law person, but I think that's one of the things you emphasize in the book is that there's these tensions between translating these ineffable experiences that happened, you know, and then turning it into words and codifying it. So I, I can appreciate your uh, resistance to that question based on larger themes in the book as well. What about in general? How do you see the discourse on and scholarship on things related to Islam and drugs developing, like in in the American North American Academy? I mean, there's there's an article here and there, you know, in terms of you know, like, like I was mentioning the uh, construction of intoxication and um, what precisely. You know, uh, or the, the conversation about what precisely is prohibited in the revelation. Uh, I, I can't really say there's there's a field or a subfield here to like talk about the state of the subfield. Yeah, but I, I would I would be interested in you know like an ethnographic project that, that was less like classical thick kind of question and more you know let, let's let's talk to people on the ground and see how. You know, again, as as there's people posting pictures of themselves popping pills at the Kaaba, how do they conceptualize this? How do they understand it? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to them? How do they how do they process this conversation about drugs and Islam in their own lives? Um, you know, there, there there's not yet, you know, in this hemisphere a Muslim ayahuasca community, you know, that, that I'm aware of where you can just go and here's a room full of Muslims who engage in a thing together and conceptualize that as an Islamic experience personally. And again, this is me as a human being in the world. I'm waiting for that. I think I would get into it until something ruined it for me, but uh, I I would like to see some kind of project in which people are thinking about 
entheogenic practices among Muslims in, in the U.S. That, that would be a fun read, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree as well. What about in terms of your, your own experience, you include some quite vivid erotic visions that you have. And then it seems like the, the takeaway that you get from it is you describe an experience after this ayahuasca ceremony, going to a mosque and praying and sort of looking at the the mundane sort of not maybe not mundane but the routine ritual aspect of Islam and how that importance had really become heightened for you. Could you say a little bit more about how your your relationship to ritual was changed by your your visionary experience? Yeah, I mean I think having a ritual script, an embodied script for how to be Muslim really carried me at a point where my brain was mostly off. You know, where, where, where my ability to, to think about it was mostly off. So, you know, I had this ayahuasca experience. It was several hours. I want to say five hours. I mean, time kind of falls apart for a lot of it. But, you know, I, I was there when it was starting to get dark and I left as, as the sun was coming up, more or less. And afterwards, we went to the masjid. And I, I was really, really slow. Like my, my thoughts were really slow. I, I wasn't really at full power mentally. And we go into the masjid and again, I'm not a drinker. I don't really, you know, I, I, I'm only imagining that this is what it's like to be kind of drunk, but I felt like I was stumbling into the masjid. I felt kind of uncoordinated and just slow, but I made wudu, you know, I'm, I'm washing before prayer and there, there's something to having a script that just is, it, it carried me through that, you know, and I'm feeling the thing. I'm having this, this experience, uh, and I, I don't have to overthink it. And I go in and I, I make the, you know, I, I do a, a prayer. And it's, the ritual script, the, the embodied actions are taking me through every prayer I've ever done. You know, it's, it's someone once said, I don't, who was this? said it's like when, when you vomit, like you're the same age as like every other time you vomit, like, like you like your first time vomiting, like when you're five years old, like in your conscious memory. Um, you know, I, I've, I've prayed a lot of prayers as a Muslim, not as many as, you know, I, I don't, I don't, punch in at the right times every day necessarily, but um, I have an embodied memory of what it's like to, to put my face on the ground in that way and to wash in that way and to sit in a space like that. And having that script brought me back into that condition uh, while my, my, cognitive processes weren't at, at full power. And I, I say this, I, I think it's, it's in my, it might be in my Salafi book, but just as pretending to be sick can produce real symptoms, I had this feeling, this sense that following the script of being Muslim could make me something like a Muslim. 
if that makes sense. You know, like, like I am doing this performance to myself and it actually produces a real condition in me. And again, you know, uh, if someone gave me an Akita quiz, you know, what do you believe about God's attributes and predestination and uh, the createdness of the Quran or whatever? Like, I, I'm not going to pass anyone's orthodoxy test, but I had the interior condition um, still kind of ineffable, uh, honestly, even though I wasn't in, you know, at the top of Ayahuasca Mountain at that point, but um, still opening myself up to, to being Muslim in this very imminent, direct immediate embodied kind of way like my body was muslim so can i can i follow up that with uh a question a student shared with me sure when i i let some of my students know that i was going to be interviewing you and since i had 60 students or so who had finished the semester reading your your book um i, I was curious you know what what was on some of their minds so um, I'll, I'll just read the question verbatim and yeah. you can have, have a stab at it as you like, but this is direct, directly from a student email. So he says, I'm curious about the passion that religious conversion or revelations can ignite in people, but also how those passions can fade and how we can slip back into our former ways of thinking. Now that a considerable amount of time has passed since Knight encountered the divine feminine on his ayahuasca trip, does he still feel the inner comfort and peace that he wrote about in Tripping with Allah? Has he held on to his intention of setting aside Islamic dogma to instead, and try, to instead try and grow by mimicking the behavior of the Prophet? Or have some of his pre-Ayahuasca trip beliefs, attitudes, practices that Fatima deemed unimportant creeped back into his life? Wow. <laughs> That's an awesome question. Uh, it, it, was, it wasn't this, uh, you know, the, the way conversion narratives often go of this switch got flipped and now I'm an entirely different person. So there's those tendencies, they come and go. I think one thing that's stuck is that I have lost most of my interest in the Quran as content. This, this is part of, you know, my experience of Fatima, you know, for people who haven't read it, this is something that I got out of that was stepping away from the text as, as a thesis that I either accept as true or not true. Um, that wasn't Fatima's deal as I you know, encountered her. So it hasn't changed the significance of the Quran for me. It just kind of reorients it. So, you know, I, I remember when I was 17 in Pakistan and listening to someone recite Surah Al-Rahman and it brought me to tears and I didn't know, you know, I hadn't studied any Arabic except the alphabet, you know, and I only knew the, uh, the five, I'm going to mess it up, Rabbika Tukagban, you know, which of the uh, favors of your Lord will you deny? Like that was like the one line I knew. Um, that was it, you know, but I was brought to tears by the sensory experience of it, you know, and so most of my life I've had next to zero Arabic, but the, the sensory experience of the Quran did a thing to me. Even seeing calligraphy 
that was so abstract that it was virtually unreadable. Uh, you know, I would, I would experience that as the Quran. So the Quran was was not always uh, entirely this discursive artifact, this argument that I have to accept is true or not. Like there was a sensory component to it. And I think the ayahuasca experience um, really turned the dial up on that. So the Quran is still the Quran. It's just what is the Quran? <laughs> you know, um, I experienced it in different ways. So, so yeah, I, I think it, it renewed the revelation for me in ways that, you know, I have certain commitments that you can call progressive or what. Um, and there's, there's certainly a lot of progressive discourse out there about, you know, what does the Quran really say about something like homosexuality or the infamous so-called wife beating verse or whatever. And, you know, while, while I recognize the real life social consequences of those projects, there was a different way of engaging those questions than, you know, I'm going to look up, I'm going to get Hans Ver and look up every possible meaning of Daraba and then decide what that is. You know, uh, there was this immediate encounter with the thing. And so, you know, Islam is a big cluster of stuff and, there's a lot in it that can be useful to us or not useful or nourishing or not nourishing. And I've, I've been attuned to what's personally nourishing for me. So I was recently in Pakistan and, and engaging the shrine culture. And that's a culture that a lot of people deem as entirely inauthentic and illegitimate and bida and blasphemous and heretical and whatever. But, um, you know, going to Lahore and, and going to the shrine of Ali's daughter, allegedly uh, that that's where I got a sense of that, that experience again, you know? And so that, that's what I look for. My, my office is slowly becoming uh, covered with these, these Panja hands, you know, um, these, these alams, these, uh, you know, hands of Abbas or hands of Fatima, depending on your orientation. And, you know, again, like it's, um, it's not just discourse. You know, I had an argument with, not an argument, I had a disagreement with a colleague that came to what translation of the Quran I would use in class. And, you know, I, I told my, my colleague that uh, I don't really make my students read the Quran. And I don't necessarily believe that for a bunch of, you know, students, uh, sitting in this kind of classroom environment, reading select passages of the Quran in English, that it necessarily does anything for them in terms of plugging into the Muslim mind. And she's like, well, of course the, the Quran is central to Muslim life. I said, well, yeah, but it's, it's not always central in that way. Or that, that's, not, that's not the only way that it becomes central. So um, there's also, let's listen to a recitation, and none of you have taken Arabic, but we're going we're gonna to listen to a recitation in Arabic. We're going to look at calligraphy. We're going to look at amulets, you know? Um, so so I, I think ayahuasca, ayahuasca opened me increasingly to these non-discursive modes of encountering the Quran. Mm -hmm. So could you say a little bit about not assigning the text per se, but how the themes of the text have inspired your own pedagogy and approach to teaching. I know you had mentioned how looking to the future and thinking about having students seemed like 
not on your mind so much, but now that you've been teaching for a, l- a little bit, could you say could you say how some of the themes in the book have helped you to perform that craft? In terms of themes in tripping that inform my teaching, I, I think it's just the the instability of, of our concepts. You know, just it really calls attention to the problem of, of the search for the real Islam, you know, and, and that's something where, you know, I, I express in a different language in the classroom because, you know, I had this experience, this destabilizing uh, experience that on the one hand, both authorized my personal subjective encounter with the tradition and also reminded me of just how personal and, and subjective it was that I wasn't getting plugged into any kind of universal truth or anything. Um, you know, after that, I went through five years of grad school and I developed a different set of tools for making somewhat similar points, you know? So I think it's, uh, it's kind of a project of translation in some ways, you know, that, um, I, I can make the argument without a hallucinatory experience. Mm-hmm. Sort of in in the spirit of the the stealth theory, the like teaching students about the thing without mentioning the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm mortified by much of what I've written in my life, but uh, you know, and I'm personally afraid to open up my older stuff. But I, I don't know that, you know, the heart of what I'm doing has changed so much. Mm-hmm. Well, be- before we conclude, I'd like to ask you about some of your current and future projects that you've been working on uh, since the book, as well as now and going forward. But, but on that note, another hypothetical, maybe impossible question to ask, but if you were to write this book over again, are there, are there different angles or anything you would have wanted to do differently or wanted to add? I, I'm, I'm terrified at this moment. I don't think I could. I don't think I could write it now. It just wouldn't happen because, you know, my, my writing life was art and it was religion. You know, it was me as a human being experiencing this stuff. And after academic training, <laughs> I think everything that makes good art becomes problematic in my current, uh, you know, place as, as a writer. You know, I, I think the spontaneity and the deeply personal dimension of, of what I was doing in that book, uh, everything that I that I like about tripping with Allah, for the most part, would be something that I would resist in in the kind of stuff that I work on now. Mm-hmm. So I, I just I couldn't imagine moving. You know, like like making like getting any momentum with it. Like like for my writing process, like I need. I need momentum, you know, like I, I need, all right, I've, I've been, I've been up for hours. It's a weird hour of, of night and I found my energy, you know, I found my momentum and it's starting to move now and I'm starting to just like let go and, and feel it and, and let it direct me. Uh, you know, sometimes that happen, happens with academic work, but it's, it's a much different kind of energy and, I don't know if I could just like let my guard down 
You know, like like I'm, I'm training myself to to keep my guard up. I think that's what academic writing is, mm-hmm. keeping your guard up. And I I, I don't think I I don't know. I don't like maybe I need to <laughs> maybe I need to spend my summer differently than I was planning. <laughs> you know, uh, just just like to keep those parts of my brain still functioning. You know, where where I could where I could write this kind of experience. So I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm on the pessimistic side right now. There, there, there's, there's a price. You know, there, there, there's a price to this kind of training. Yeah. You, you come out differently on the other side. Well, and, I, and I'm just kind of wrestling with, you know, the thing you were saying earlier about being in this AAR room where you're having this conversation about how people can't, like, hold down other jobs because they have this, like, hyper-focused training. And, you know, there's all these, um, you know, critiques how academics can't, like – don't know how to communicate with people and write in this super technical, hard to read style. And it seems like you're at once saying like, like, yeah, I, I'm appreciating that. Yeah. I think so many people are like, how can I make my writing accessible? So, uh, I mean, I think, I think this is the, the limbo that a lot of us find ourselves in and there's no magical answer. Um, but it's really, it's been, it's cool to hear you think through the process in your book and then also, you know, live as we speak. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm presently, you know, I, I'm working on stuff and my last couple books have been like this. Like, like I really, I'm not writing for the field except maybe you want to assign this in a class. You know, I'm, I'm like my magic book, my selfie book. It's a trace of the stuff that I did before you know, writer as adventure man kind of thing, but it's still a book that I wrote mostly in the library. You know what I mean? So, so that, that kind of stuff, like I'm trying to keep that part of my voice alive and that, that skill set of just being able to communicate with people off campus, you know, um, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, to keep it going. And, you know, honestly, like I, I spent years invested in, and being a writer as a writer, like that was just it, you know, like I'm not writing this for, for tenure. You know what I mean? Like just like writing is the end itself. Uh, and I, I don't want to let that go. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to add, add as well. Um, yeah. When, when I'm, when I'm guessing about the kinds of things that my students have read and what they'll remember five years from now, um, I would, I would, I would put tripping with the law in the category of, you know, I would I would expect him to have some memory of the book, and you know, in terms of just pet pedagogy, I think there's there's totally something to crawling under their skin and saying the things that other people won't say, and it's a uh, yeah, it's 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 effective, and so th- thanks for writing it for <laughs> my own purposes, so I could have the pleasure of teaching it to students this semester. That's the best. I mean, that's the best I can hope for, and I, I love hearing about that because. Like I said, you know, I, I can't assign it in my class. If, if, if any class on my campus where I'm at was using it, um, I would be horrified. <laughs> I, I, like, it, it was in the bookstore here at Kenyon, like, and that, that bugged me out. Like, just walking in, there's a Kenyon author's shelf, and there's a course <laughs> tripping with Allah. And, you know, I'm losing my mind. Like, I, I put my head down and, you know, keep walking. But, but yeah, if, if someone far, far away uses it, and it works, then I'm, I'm really thankful for that. <laughs> cool. Well, glad, glad to be part of it then. So as we wrap things up, 
could you tell us a little bit about what projects you're currently working on and what your next five years or so is looking like in terms of writing projects? Yeah, so I got a couple things in the works. Um, lately, I, I've been testifying as an expert witness in religious freedom cases regarding the five percenters. Uh, and that's a way, you know, I have, I have a pretty complex history with that community. And, you know, we have that existential angst as, you know, we research this stuff. And is there any social good that comes out of our work? Um, or are we just parasites? And so uh, the chance to, to do something productive with, with that work has been meaningful to me and maybe bring me back into future work in terms of the five percenter community uh, and, and these questions of religious freedoms for this community that, um, number one, offers a resistance to white supremacy that provokes certain reactions from, from authorities to them. And, and number two, they, they deny that they are a religion. And so the complexities of, well, what's a religion? And do you get religious freedom if you don't say you're religious? Like those kinds of things. So I'm, I may be stepping through that portal again, through that testimony. Uh, also, there's there's my dissertation on, on the body of the prophet, which um, you know, I, I put some work into that and I'd like to see that come out and, and see what it can do in the world. So I'm in the process of turning that into a book. Uh, I also have this, uh, project on Deleuze and Islam bringing, cause Deleuze was, you know, here and there in my dissertation. And so that's a conversation I would like to continue. Someone once told me that, you know, your book after your dissertation should be the book that would have made your dissertation easier if it already existed. So, so the Deleuze and Islam project might do that. And for years, uh, I've been working on stuff with the Nubian Islamic Hebrews and Sarul Law community, now known as the Nuwabians, but I, I get more into the Nubian Islamic Hebrews period of, of their trajectory. And I have kind of a cubby system. Now, this is something, you know, Lori Silvers told me this way back in the day about one of her mentors. I think it was Chidik who, like, had this cubby system of, you know, when the cubby gets full, then you have a book. You, know, you just keep kind of collecting articles and materials over the years, and eventually the cubby fills up. So my Nubian Islamic Hebrew cubby is filling up. So that's a project that I feel needs to manifest soon. So yeah, so there's, there's a couple of things going on. And, and I, I'm i one of those professors now who just says he's going to write a novel one of these days. <laughs> like, like, that's a thing that happens. Um, I feel like everybody says that. At some point, like, oh, I'm just going to sit down and write a novel, you know, like, like people say, oh, I'm just going to sit down and write a dissertation, you know. Right. Uh, but yeah, you know, like I, I want to keep those juices flowing. You know, I don't want to lose that part of myself. So at some point, I might just, you know, hermit it up and, and come out with something that's uh, not peer reviewed, you know. <laughs> well, cool. Sounds like a continuation of the exciting and diverse uh, collection that you've already produced and it's been a pleasure speaking with you michael thank you so much for thank sharing your time and your thoughts i had fun thank you so much and i look forward to seeing more of your work as it comes out thanks thank you that was my conversation with michael muhammad knight assistant professor of religion and cultural studies at the university of central florida about his provocative and super fun book, Tripping with Allah, Islam, Drugs, and Writing, published by Soft Skull Press in 2013. Thanks for listening.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.